0: Chapter 1. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you in front of you, this should be on page 770 here in Black Rock Fairfield. Today we begin a series on the exciting adventure-packed story of God's work through His people. And God has been authoring this story for over 2,000 years and He's still writing it today. This story has a beginning, and this beginning is recorded in the book of Acts, where we learn that once upon a time, there was this church that made history. So let's look at how the story unfolds in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The author here is a man named Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all of that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. And After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Now skipping down a few verses, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And in verse 15, though in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Did you hear that? At the time Jesus ascended to heaven, the church was about 120. People. Now, in one of his letters, the Apostle Paul uh, refers to the fact that the risen Jesus appeared to about 500 people. So maybe this 120 does not include everyone. But at the outside, the story of Acts begins with only about 500 people who were the sum total of all the Christ followers on the planet at that time. But now, 2,000 years later, Earth's population is 6 billion. And it is estimated that over 99% of the world's population has heard of Jesus. And one-third of the world's population is a Christ follower in one form or another. And all this began with a handful of people who formed the first church. That this church made history is an indisputable historical fact. And it is a miraculous story attested to by all historians everywhere. Once upon a time, there was this church that made history history. but The question is, how? How did this happen? And this is precisely the question that God answers through the book of Acts. Jesus is begging me to ask the question, how can I be a person who makes history like these first believers? Well, Jesus answers the question in verse eight of this first chapter when Jesus tells his followers, you will receive history. Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, I suggest you circle two words in verse 8: circle the word power and circle the word be. Highlight these two words because they answer the big question of the book of Acts. They answer how these ordinary Christ followers became a church that made history. The answer begins with that word power. These followers received power from Jesus. And when I hear this word, I think I know what it means. I say, oh, I get it. Uh, These people receive power to do miraculous stuff. They received power to heal people and save people and write the Bible. When I hear that Jesus gives power, I automatically think that it means that Jesus gave power to do things. But... I'm wrong about that, because Jesus says, you will receive power to be my witnesses. Notice that Jesus gives power to be, not to do. First, which means that as his follower, Jesus does not first give me the power to do something I could not otherwise do. But first and foremost, Jesus gives me the power to be somebody I could not otherwise be. Now, it is true that being someone in Christ results in my doing something in Christ. God calls me to be someone miraculous who does something miraculous. I make history. But in order to make history, I must get the order right because doing instead of first being can be deadly Uh, many of us grew up in homes and churches where being a christ follower meant doing certain things where being a christ follower meant doing your duty and doing good works doing good deeds Going to church and standing up and sitting down at the right times, trying to be good and failing, then trying to do more, do better. And when being a Christ follower uh, is about doing, it turns into a frustrating experience. I grew up as a kid wanting to be Superman. As a young guy, I'd gather up fall leaves uh, in in a big pile in my backyard and then jump off the garage roof onto the pile of leaves. You know, a pile of leaves seems like it will be a great cushion. Uh, Nobody told me that jumping from the garage into a pile of leaves could cause brain damage. But as I lay there crippled in the pile of leaves, I was just saying, Curse you, gravity, you are my kryptonite. I was not Superman. Then came Halloween, which was another disappointing experience. At Halloween, I would dress up As Superman to go out trick-or-treating in my neighborhood. Unfortunately, I grew up in Chicago uh, where it could get really cold by the end of October, so I would get ready to go out wearing my best Superman outfit with the red cape, the red tights, the letter S on my chest, and then my mom would tell me to put on a coat. Because it was cold outside. I'd say, Mom, I'm Superman. Superman can't wear a coat. Superman would never fly into a bank robbery with bullets firing and have the crook say, Superman, what is that? Are you wearing a sweater? Uh, I'd say, Mom, I, I'm Superman. I would, Superman would never wear a coat. And my mom would say, well, Superman would never ring doorbells and ask for candy either. And so, curse you, logic. You're my kryptonite. So I wore the coat. And once again, I had the run-up of frustration that I couldn't really do Superman because I couldn't really be Superman. In the same way, it is frustrating to do witnessing for Jesus without being a witness of Jesus. I must first be a Jesus witness First, I must be a child of God through faith in Jesus. Then I can live like God's child. When I receive the power to be a Jesus witness, His indwelling Holy Spirit gives me the power to live like Him and make history. Clark Kent became Superman when he knew who he really was. There was a day when Mr. and Mrs. Kent had to sit down at the kitchen table and say, Clark, we need to tell you who you really are. And when Clark knew who he really was, he became Superman. This is what happened... For those first followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Jesus promised his followers that they would receive power. And Jesus fulfilled that promise on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Just like Mr. and Mrs. Kent uh, had to do with Clark, Pentecost is the day when God sat down with his people and said, I want to tell you who you really are. The day of Pentecost is described in Acts chapter 2. Uh, so while you're paging there, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Pentecost. Pentecost is a Hebrew holy day that God instituted in his, uh, among his Old Testament people 1,500 years before Jesus. Pentecost is the Greek translation of what was known as the Hebrew Feast of Weeks. Israel was an agrarian society, and so the Feast of Weeks was a harvest festival. It was a time to thank God for all his gifts. And that is why it is so significant that Jesus refers to the power of his Holy Spirit as the gift Of God in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. The gift of the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, the day to celebrate the gifts of God that come from God's generous heart, we could not deserve. But that's not the only significance of Pentecost. Pentecost also had a second level of meaning. Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50 days after Passover. Passover, you'll remember, was the day when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt, uh, the day uh, when he parted the Red Sea. And then the Bible indicates that about 50 days after Passover, God's presence descended on Mount Sinai. So besides being a day of thanksgiving, Pentecost was also the day when God's people remembered how God's presence came to his people on Mount Sinai. And this dramatic event is described in the book of Exodus chapter 19 and describes how God came with his presence in several signs. The signs included one, a loud blowing noise and two, a fire in the sky. In Exodus chapter 19, this deafening noise at Mount Sinai is described as a loud movement of air, as if air blowing through a trumpet. With this noise and this blazing fire in the sky, there were these two signs of God's holy, awesome, powerful presence that were remembered on the day of Pentecost. Now, with this as background, this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? And the reason they gathered uh, to ask, What does this mean? is because they knew what this meant. They knew about the first Pentecost described in Exodus chapter 19. They knew that this loud blowing noise and the fire were symbols of God's presence. So they knew what this meant. When the noise started and the fire separated and came to rest on the heads of each one of these Christ followers, they knew that this meant that God's powerful presence was resting on these followers of Jesus. Just like Mr. and Mrs. Kent did with Clark when the fire of God's presence separated and settled on The individual heads of these followers, Jesus was saying to his people, let me tell you who you really are. You are my witnesses. You are the bearers of my presence. I am with you to reveal myself. Through you to the world. And through these flames over their heads, Jesus told his people who they were. And knowing who they were, knowing that Jesus was with them through his Holy Spirit, gave these first believers the boldness to make history. Once upon a time, there was this church that made history. Because they were empowered by the boldness that comes with knowing who they were and who was with them. The church of Acts was bold and courageous and a fearless church because they knew who they were and who was with them. Before they received the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were a frightened, timid bunch. But after they received God's power and His Holy Spirit, they had the power to be witnesses, and they were bold and fearless and unafraid. The author of the book of Acts was a medical doctor named Luke. And if you look at the very first verse of the first chapter of Acts, Luke refers to his prequel. Uh, The Gospel of Luke. And if you look at the end of Luke's Gospel, you'll see fear in the eyes of Jesus' followers. Peter is denying Jesus. Thomas is doubting Jesus. And all the disciples are running and hiding in terror. And this quivering went right up to the day of Pentecost when finally... Something changed because God explained who they were and who was with them through that fire. And when those flames rested on them, their immediate reaction was to rise with boldness and proclaim Jesus. And they never looked back. If you are a Christ follower, God wants to empower you with the boldness that comes with knowing who you are and who is with you. None of us should be rude or coercive or inappropriate, but when appropriate, God wants you to make history by being bold enough to tell a friend about your friend Jesus. When everyone else is collapsing With worry and anxiety, God wants you to make history by showing how His presence in your life brings the boldness of peace instead of panic. The flame of God's presence is in your life to consume worry and anxiety and insecurity and guilt and loneliness and consume everything else that would make your life a waste as you bottle up in fear. Instead, God gives you the flame of His presence so that you are bold enough to know that you have God's very uh, presence in your life, so that you can step out and help people and really love people in a way that makes a difference in this world, so that your life actually makes history. Here at BlackRock, we know the history making power of knowing who we are and who is with us. We follow in the footsteps here at BlackRock of bold Christ followers who went before us in our 162-year history. Christ followers who have gone before us at a very crucial moment in the early 20th century. Let me tell you what I mean. About 15 years ago, uh, Karen Armstrong wrote a best-selling book entitled The History of God. Uh, Most of what she writes about God, in my opinion, is contrary to biblical truth. But she is historically accurate when she describes a major faith crisis that hit America in the early 20th century. At that time, the leading thinkers were united in their prediction that in a very short time frame... All educated people would shed their belief in God and the spiritual world. The combined wisdom of Darwin and science and Nietzschean philosophy and Marx and sociology and Freud and psychology predicted that modern people would eventually discard any belief in God. They said that before science, well, people needed to believe in the supernatural because there were no explanations for natural events. People would say, we need rain for our crops, but there's no rain. Why is it? It must be that the rain God is angry at us. But today, we know all about weather patterns, and so we don't need supernatural explanations for life. And in this way, modern people will outgrow their need for God altogether. And this logic seems so compelling that the intellectuals of the early 20th century cried out that if churches wanted to survive, they needed to strip their doctrine of all the childish ancient beliefs in God and the Bible as the word of God uh, they said it was ridiculous to consider uh, the Bible as God's word you know there was one place in America where this intellectual pressure was the strongest and guesses where that was right here in New England and did you know that there was one place in New England where the pressure was the strongest and guesses where that was Right here in southwestern Connecticut, on the Connecticut coast, around Yale, and then also uh, in Harvard. And so... Uh, Harvard area. So most churches in this area bowed to the pressure and they stripped themselves of all belief in anything supernatural. They said, we don't believe that Jesus died for sins. Uh, We don't believe that he rose from the dead. We don't believe in miracles or the Bible is the word of God. We don't believe that there's a real heaven or a real hell or sin or salvation or prayer or being born again through faith in Jesus. These churches said soon. No educated person will believe these things, and so neither do we. And since the pressure to conform to this approach was most intense here in southwestern Connecticut, our church here at Black Rock was in the center of that controversy. Black Rock took a bold stand and made history. Knowing who we are and who is with us led BlackRock to stand against all that pressure. While other churches were throwing out their Bibles, BlackRock was opening their Bibles like never before. While other churches were stripping of their belief in the early 20th century, we were enjoying what our BlackRock historical records call the Quiet Revival. The Quiet Revival was a period when... uh... People by the scores rediscovered their Bibles and started meeting together to study Scripture and pray. First it was 10, then 20, then 30, and 40, and hundreds were gathering for Bible study. And some of these Black Rockers were far from God at the time. But when they read the Bible, they met Jesus, put their faith in Him, and they were totally transformed. And these changed lives were so dramatic that they became living proof that Jesus was alive. These BlackRock believers became witnesses and they became bold. They began to tell others about Jesus. Friends and neighbors and co workers saw this transformation in these BlackRockers and. They, too, turned to Jesus. And so while every other Protestant church in uh, this area turned away from faith, BlackRock stood boldly and said, You want us to say that the Bible is not God's word, but we're meeting God through the pages of Scripture. You want us to say that there are no miracles, but God has changed our lives. You want us to say that Jesus did not rise from the dead, but we just talked to him this morning. This bold stand culminated in 1945 when BlackRock chose to become independent of its denomination that was turning away from God. Those in the denomination laughed at BlackRock and said, good riddance. What about those churches that threw away their Bibles? Well, some of them are still open today. One of those church buildings I pass by every day on my way home from this place, uh, it's been converted into a lovely single-family home. Meanwhile, more and more people were coming to Christ here at Black Rock. And those faithful followers knew that God wanted them to make room for more people. And so they took another bold step of faith. They boldly left their historic building and built this facility at this location. And there were those who laughed at them because this property was, was farmland at that time and considered way too far away and inaccessible. And some in the church doubted that this was uh, the, the wrong time and too much money and too much sacrifice. And when God opened the door, however, these faithful people walked through that door. And I'm so glad they did because they... They made history because they were bold. Thousands and upon thousands of men and women and boys and girls have heard the good news and have had their lives changed for all eternity in this facility. But the historical ripples don't end there. If you know much about New England and the state of the church in New England, you will agree that there is something different about our area. In the rest of New England, there are very few strong, uh, Christ-centered churches. But mysteriously, in the region surrounding Black Rock here, there is a high concentration of strong Bible-teaching churches. Well, actually, this is no mystery. When you talk to the people who know the history, as I do, you will find that each of these strong Bible-teaching churches around us Point to BlackRock's role in paving the way for their growth. Some of these churches we planted or uh, supported or stre- strengthened directly, but many more of these churches refer to how it was BlackRock's stand, bold stand for the gospel, back in the earliest 20th century that made it possible for them to flourish today. These churches go on and on about how BlackRock's boldness inspired them years ago and continues to do so today. Only in heaven will we see the extent to which BlackRock made history when it made its bold stand in the early 20th century. And by the way, uh, back to Darwin, Nietzsche, uh, Marx and Freud's prediction that modern people would shed their need for God. uh, In her book, Karen Armstrong states that from a historical perspective, uh, history has proven that these dead guys were dead wrong. History proves that the growth of scientific knowledge has done nothing to decrease Human desire to connect with God. In fact, the advancement of technology has only intensified human need for answers to the meaning of life and the fear of death. People are starving for truth about God, especially in New England. And although we have strong churches all around us and Black Rock will continue to feed that strength in our area, our region is dying for news of the Savior. So Jesus calls us to be His witnesses. Now it is our turn to be bold. Now it is our turn to heed Jesus and His call to receive power and be a church that makes history.